This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, loneliness in college students. Loneliness is one of the largest unanticipated challenges that college students face, particularly when they transition into college. All alone on a big college campus when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show. Here's a preview of what they're covering on Viewpoints this week. This week on Viewpoints. There's so much information out there, this big data from the internet. What can we learn about who we really are from all this data? One researcher's deep dive into the big data of the internet in an effort to understand more about human behavior. Then, racial inequities in a beloved art form. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station, iTunes and Stitcher. College can be an exciting time for students. And as the new school year approaches, students across the nation are gearing up for what many people say are the best four years of their lives. Yet for many college students, that's not the way it works out, according to a study by the healthcare company Cigna. Young adults are the loneliest generation in the United States, the loneliest group of people ages 18 to 22. They report levels of loneliness that exceed the elderly. My kind of jaw is still on the ground about that, because when we think of who is really lonely in this country, we imagine elderly people who many of us have forgotten. So how is it possible that the age group that is most likely to be hanging out with their friends should be so lonely? That's Rachel Simmons, a leadership development specialist at Smith College. She brings up a good point. College students are surrounded by thousands of other people, yet they're lonely. And this problem isn't new. This did exist in earlier times. I think we didn't ask about it and young people didn't speak about it much. People just either dealt with it or left school or transferred and nobody was paying attention to those young people who didn't really settle in and thrive in their colleges. But to a great extent, I don't think people talked about mental health and feelings and these kinds of issues as much as we do now because it just wasn't talked about. To some extent, these concerns you know, were felt to be something that was private. The schools didn't see it as their role to get involved with these kinds of problems, unless for some reason it was right there in front of their faces. That's Dr. Victor Schwartz, chief medical officer at the Jed Foundation, a nonprofit promoting mental health among adolescents and young adults. He says the transition to college is particularly difficult. For people who've gone away to college, for most, it's really the first time that they're away from home for any protracted period of time. So it's kind of a challenge, even though you can be surrounded by lots of people to, you know, make new friends, to adjust to, uh, you know, an unfamiliar environment. All of those things, even though there are structures in place, can really take some time to develop new friendships, develop comfort with a new environment. But how exactly do we define loneliness? Julianne Holt-Lundstad, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, says there's an important distinction between loneliness and social isolation. Social isolation refers to more of an objective measure of few, if any, relationships or infrequent contact, whereas loneliness is the subjective 
feeling of being alone or the discrepancy between one's desired and actual level of social contact. So many times being isolated, of course, puts you at greater risk for loneliness. And so these can go hand in hand, but you can be isolated and not lonely and you can be lonely and not isolated. So even in the middle of a busy college campus, students can still feel alone. But why has it become such a common problem? The primary hypotheses around this stem from a couple of different sources. One is, of course, technology, which has been hotly debated. And the hypothesis is that because you know teens as well as adults are spending so much time on their phones that they lack the kinds of social skills to interact face-to-face. So they don't really know what to say or how to make eye contact or these other kinds of basic social skills that would engage us on a more personal level. Simmons has observed this decline in basic social skills as well through her work at Smith College. To my great surprise, one of the workshops that I offer is called How to Make Small Talk. It's just basically like, how do you make small talk? I have been astonished at the number of students who ask for that workshop. In other words, a lot of young people don't feel comfortable or have the basic skills to just make informal conversation. And I think part of what we're seeing is that if you've grown up always being put in an activity, always having to listen to an adult tell you what to do at that activity, and then you are suddenly put in situations, for example, you go to college, you know, you go to a new orientation program, or you even go to the workplace, and you're expected to introduce yourself and find ways to connect with someone in conversation. A lot of these people don't know how to do it, and I think that's a big part of why they're saying they're so lonely. So can we really blame technology? Simmons says no. Instead, she points to cultural forces that have made constant busyness the new norm. I think that it's very convenient for us as parents to say it's all social media's fault, when actually we as parents play a role here as well. While we know that parents spend more time with their children than ever, which is a really promising and important thing, the question is for me, as parents, are we teaching our kids to value downtime? Or do we feel like our children, that we and our families are only worthy when we're doing something important, when we're doing something structured? A lot of it has to do with a loss of meaningful connection. So it's not that they're not connecting. It's that the way they're connecting is putting kind of real meaningful relationships second to something else that they are valuing, which is productivity, trying to get into college, trying to get the good job, and it's not making them feel connected. Stress culture and loss of social connections can even take a toll on health. And Schwartz says loneliness is associated with more risks than we may think. Feeling lonely and being lonely, not having supportive relationships, actually has a negative impact not just on your mental health, terms of the uh, risk for depression and to some extent anxiety and even suicide, but it actually has negative impact on your physical health as well. You know, some people have said that loneliness has nearly as much impact as things like obesity and hypertension. There are significant impacts on physical health. But Holt Lundstad takes this a step further. Through two meta-analyses in which she combines data from multiple studies, she finds loneliness puts people at greater risk for an early death. 
in these studies, they followed people over time to see whether level of social connection influenced who was alive and who was dead at the follow-up. And indeed, what we found was that it was a significant predictor and that being socially connected was associated with a 50% reduced risk for premature mortality. To contextualize this, we benchmarked this data relative to other well-known risk factors for premature mortality. This includes things like obesity, physical inactivity, excessive alcohol consumption, air pollution. And what we found was that this had a comparable risk to these other kinds of risk factors that we take very seriously for our health. But what about all those other health risks? Some people are in poor health prior to feeling lonely. So how do we actually know if loneliness is what's leading to death? Among these studies included in the meta-analysis, the majority of them were initially healthy individuals. And in the cases where the sample did have some kind of clinical condition, regardless of health status, those who are more socially connected lived longer than those who were less socially connected. But despite all that evidence, Holt Lundstad says the loneliness epidemic hasn't received much attention, and we can't ignore it much longer. This is an important issue for our health, and take it just as seriously as we do things like diet, exercise, and incorporate it into those small everyday decisions. So much like we need to make time in our busy schedules to be physically active, we need to make time in our busy schedules to be socially active. But many students aren't able to do that by themselves. That's why Schwartz says schools play a key role in combating loneliness. There are things that schools can do uh, in their orientation programming, in their training of their residence hall staff, in their training of academic advisors that really get them to reach out and actively try to connect to students who may be off the grid. Not 100% effective, but if you're looking out for people who might be isolated or disconnected, you can often find them. And if you take steps to try to find connections, to try to engage them, you often can. Student affairs has become more intentional, more thoughtful, more strategic than it was years ago, where it was you know, just a place for students to let off some steam and have some fun and do some activities. You need to create numbers of, you know, interlocking sub-communities, groups, activities, intramural sports, residence halls. There are all kinds of opportunities, even on a really big campus, to create connections and sub-communities to help students feel connected to each other and to groups and sometimes several groups connected together. Simmons says parents aren't off the hook either. We as parents have to ask ourselves, have we given permission to our children to rest to take a mental health day, to not always be productive? Have we modeled that for them? Because, you know, I had a mom that I was speaking to, a mom of an eighth grade girl, and she said, well, I'm a workaholic, but I don't want my daughter to be that way. And it's too late to fix me, but can you tell me what to do for her? 
I said, look, you know, you can say all the things that you want, but if you're not setting the example, it's very difficult for her to value what you don't value. And so it's absolutely critical for parents. We've got to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, what are we teaching our kids about the value of the downtime that can create meaningful connection with others? Yes, consistent hard work can lead to success. But like Simmons, Schwartz also believes in the value of downtime. There's something to be said for having time just to play and do stuff that isn't structured and isn't being in some way graded, not only because the connections that come out of that are in some ways, you know, more relaxed, but it's also a way to learn skills around relating to other people. So actually, you know, sort of playing games where kids are dealing with it themselves and not structured or overseen is a way of learning rules, you know, opportunities to learn to lose. It's a way of listening to others and cooperating with others and understanding how social backs and forths happen. What's supposed to be the best four years of your life may not feel that way for many college students. It's up to them to reach out to other students and up to parents and colleges to help them do it. Our entire program this week was written by Hannah Swarm. I'm Reed Pence. Reproductive history may play a role in Alzheimer's disease. Research reported at the 2018 Alzheimer's Association International Conference finds that women with three or more children have a 12% lower risk of dementia compared to women with one child, while each month a woman is pregnant may lower her Alzheimer's risk by 5.5%. Dr. Heather Snyder is Senior Director of the Alzheimer's Association. While this is very early research, these new findings are especially interesting because more women than men have Alzheimer's, and we need to figure out why. There are a variety of risk factors that affect us throughout our entire life, and understanding what happens to a woman's body and brains over time may help us discover effective prevention and treatments. The new report also found that the number of miscarriages may impact dementia risk. The Alzheimer's Association says nearly two-thirds of Americans with Alzheimer's disease are women. Find out more about the impact of Alzheimer's on women at www.alz.org. As Americans, we love to snack. In fact, according to a recent report by Mintel, 94% of Americans snack each day. While two-thirds of us admit to snacking to satisfy a craving, one-third are trying to snack on healthier foods. Some foods can meet both needs. Registered dietitian Courtney Romano is a health advisor for the California Table Grape Commission. Fresh grapes are a perfect snack because not only do they taste great, they're healthy too. A bonus is the grapes are ripe and ready to eat when you buy them. And they're a packable snack that you can bring with you when you're out and about. Grapes from California are also a natural source of antioxidants and other polyphenols and may contribute to heart health. With just 90 calories for a three-quarter cup serving, no fat or cholesterol, and virtually no sodium, fresh grapes are a smart choice. For more information, visit grapesfromcalifornia.com. Do you often misplace your keys, forget names, or lose your train of thought? You may be one of over 10 million Americans with undiagnosed MCI, or mild cognitive impairment. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute estimates 65% of MCI patients eventually develop dementia. But the good news, according to Ohio State University neurologist Dr. Douglas Sharae, is... While there's currently no cure for Alzheimer's disease, the most common type of dementia, the earlier we detect mild cognitive impairment, 
the better chance we have to treat it and delay progression of the disease. Fortunately, there's now a 15-minute at-home screening test called Brain Test, clinically validated to detect MCI. And for a limited time, you can receive a 30-day free trial to Brain Test by visiting braintest.com. The sooner you screen, the more treatment options available, so don't delay. Again, for your 30-day free trial, visit braintest.com. That's braintest.com. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.